Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of Undercooled. And today we are lucky to have with us Professor Perry Sampson. Perry is the Arthur Thurneau Professor of Atmospheric Science in the Climate and Space Sciences Department. And Perry has had an amazing career. Um, he's really well known for starting the Weather Underground many years ago and uh, has also been very involved in technology in education, especially with the development of his uh, company called uh, Lecture Tools, uh, which eventually was sold to Echo 360. And I'll let Perry in a little while tell you about that. And now he's got a new venture using generative AI to uh, help students get information from courses with a curated uh, set of data. So with that, welcome, Perry. And why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Uh, well, thanks. Thanks, Steve. Um, what about myself? You know, I've been building technology for a long time for the classroom and I've always built it only because <laughs> there's an, a need I had in my own class. Like the Weather Underground, I built that because I simply wanted weather information for my nine o'clock class. And this was back before there was an internet. So we had to be creative in how we got that information. And that had as like as many as 50 people use it a week. We thought that was pretty darn good. And then and then Hurricane Bob happened and it jumped to 50,000. So when you create something that you need for your own class, as I know you do, Steve, uh, invariably there are other people who need it as well. So it's the information, the ideas seem to just grow through the community. That's great. And... Uh, you've you've always taught the extreme weather course, and how many students are in that class typically? Oh, countless, <laughs> and a couple hundred students a semester, <clears throat> limited by room size. Until we moved to the a model where I made a hybrid, so they could either come to class or not come to class, and I grew grew beyond that at that point. Uh, so as I created lecture tools, which allowed students to interact with me and each other during class time. And so we had more interactive sessions, more kinds of questions we could ask, get students to actively involve in constructing their own understanding. And, um, and here we are today now with this new tool called uh, Learning Clues, built on, well, I'll get there in a moment, but it's just built on some other expectations that I think students uh, want and need. So you have a very long history of using technology in your classroom, and I know you've done a lot of uh, innovative things with, uh, with um, lecture tools. You also learned how to start a company and uh, how to sell it. You never, you never learn. You're learning. <laughs> and uh, you even had a little um, uh, business incubator in your space uh, near the Michigan Theater for a while, trying to help other people develop their ideas. <clears throat> and uh, during the process with lecture tools, you also use lecture tools to do a lot of interesting research on learning. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. You know, one of the things that came out of that was we, we were building this basically with the students in the class and saying, all right, now I can ask you questions during class. 
and you can respond. I can ask all kinds of questions now as far beyond the clickers, which was the main source at that point. Uh, but uh, I said, um, anything else that you think we need? And they said, well, yeah, how about if we could ask you questions uh, during class? And so we added a, what we call a back channel where the students could pose questions during class. And then my teaching assistant would be answering these questions as class was going on, basically doing spin control on what Perry was saying. You know, he really didn't mean to say that. Um, and that wound up being ridiculously popular where students could then, students who otherwise in a large lecture hall were not gonna raise their hand. You know, you're very, it's a very intimidating environment. You're imagining you're a first generation student or you're just a student for whom the rest of the class looks different. And you're saying, oh, no way I'm raising my hand in this class. And so this back channel concept took off. And <clears throat> I would average over 500 questions a semester from a class of about 150. So either this allowed them to ask the questions they otherwise wouldn't and or I'm just that confusing. But regardless, the students had the opportunity to participate more fully in the class who otherwise might not which led us to a research project we have going on still now for the National Science Foundation for how does the availability of a, an, a, a back channel affect your self-sense of belonging in the discipline. Now, if you're in a class and you don't feel like you belong, if you can ask questions and realize or just see the questions, and realize that your, their, the other questions are no dumber than questions you would ask, then you know you, you feel like maybe I do belong here. And that research continues. Oh, that's awesome. And then I also know you had the tool where students could put a dot on an image, and you did some interesting things with that. Can you tell us about what you did with uh, um, physical and, and mental well-being? Well, Thanks for asking that, because that was one of my prides, was that, uh, you know, we had clickers, and clickers, I thought, were a good step towards trying to help the students know what they didn't know. Uh, but the kinds of data that I teach about is more geospatial, weather maps and such. So I could show the map of the, of the, the United States and say, well, where do you expect it to be uh, warmer tomorrow? And why? That was the mo most important part was not only could they put a dot on the image as their vote, but also have to explain why they chose that spot. And then I could spend, it just changed the nature of my class because instead of just going on and talking for the whole 50 minutes, invariably one of these big good maps uh, would, would show up and I would just go from dot to dot and talk about what, what, what here's your answer. You chose this spot and your logic was this and I could uncover a lot of misconceptions uh, in the process of just letting them uh, vote and offer their logic behind the voting. So it, it's a fundamental different way to conduct class where you've actually now invited them to ask the questions to show what they know so that you can give them feedback. Um, I thought that was a, well, a great fun in a weather class, of course, and, uh, you know, we have a map of every track of every hurricane that's ever happened and say, well, what on this map doesn't make sense? 
Try that with pretty much any graph you've got. Try it with an image you've got. Ask your students what part of this image doesn't make sense. And you get some very, very interesting uh, questions. Yeah. No, that sounds great. And I'm really glad you're saying all this because this is going to feed into our discussion of artificial intelligence and generative AI, I'm sure, in a very big way. But before we get there, can you also talk about two more things I remember you telling me that I thought were fascinating? Uh, you did some research to figure out what was the impact of students who only saw your lecture from their dorm room versus those who actually came to class. So why don't you tell us about that? Even before COVID, uh, it became obvious to me that, that you know, the weather kind of sucks in Michigan from time to time. And it's, it's a, uh, it was challenging for everybody to get to class. And, and many students had a legitimate reasons. They were ill. They had other responsibilities. They couldn't come to class. So why not think of it differently? And I, I looked into how do you, how could I broadcast my class and found some technology which let me do that. Uh, this um, technology with the broadcast meant that now I could still have the same interactions, ask the questions about the map or whatever, and the students sitting in, in their dormitory or wherever they're at could still answer questions and ask questions from where they were. So. The logical next question was, well, did it affect their learning? And uh, the research I did, which we published for the EDUCAUSE, uh, showed uh, that, in fact, the students who were, we, watched, we knew how many, we knew where the students were every day. And we were able to then go through them, and the students who were watching from away wound up getting, getting the same the distribution of grades wasn't different. There was no change, no whatsoever. Now, it might have been the nature of that particular course where we didn't require a whole lot of group discussion. I mean, a course like the courses you have, there's a great deal of group discussion. And obviously that benefits, I think, from being in class together. In this particular case, it was, it was not that. I was a class with 200. I was given one teaching assistant. So we uh, did it in a more traditional way. And in that situation, the students had all the access to the resources and they fully were able, I was actually teaching from here in Northern Michigan uh, to, to the students either in the classroom, they can come to the classroom or it could be wherever. And we discovered that too, once we made that an option, that the number of students who physically came to class dropped by 50% after about two weeks. Yeah. And then just continued to drop as the semester went on. Because they are smart kids. They can figure out, do I, do I physically need to be in this particular course or not? And we, we, we enlist the best students to come to Michigan. You know, honor that. They, they can figure it out. And if they don't figure it out, if they cannot, you know, my, my, Baseline question was, can they answer the questions on the exams correctly? And if you can do that by watching from away, why not make that an option? Now, I know my colleagues might disagree with that, but uh, at least for this kind of course, it, it made sense. Great. And what about the um, when you had them fill out the plot where they had to put a 
dot on the page of with uh, how they felt, right, mentally or physically. Oh, okay. Thanks. I forgot about that. You're right. That was a bit of research also. We uh, had an image on the screen, and the image allowed you to put on this graph uh, the x-axis, I believe, was how did you feel physically, and the y-axis was how did you feel emotionally. And you could put a dot on the map, and I had every day in class do that, and then we were able to trace over the semester then how these dots changed after the semester was over, how these dots changed and related that to grades and such. Um, the relationships, uh, first of all, are very collinear. If you're physically unwell, then you're you know, emotionally unwell. That, that, that made sense. There were certainly outliers, and we tried to discover what these, these issues were about. Uh, on a few days each semester, we'd say, all right, put your dot on the map and turn on that feature, so now tell us why. Why are you feeling this way? And there's just so many different issues that students were suffering through that I never would have known about. Yeah, as an instructor, so much of how they engage in the course and how much they can really focus is a function of, of other things we don't know about, physically and emotionally. And so the, this insight about, you know, some students are really, holy crow, you know, these students are having some real issues here. Now, you know, I asked them afterwards, well, how would you, what would you want me to do? If I knew that you were having some uh, emotional crisis, um, first of all, if it's really bad, it's my job to, to try to get some help. But beyond that, what would you hope I would do? And I gave them a series of options. Number one was, um, was uh, I, oh, here are some resources on campus. And their response to that was me. That's fine. Or okay, I could I could uh, let your advisor know. No, no, we don't want that. I could I could I guess I could let your parents know. Absolutely not. Um, so I was like, what do you want? And the one thing they all wanted was coffee. They wanted simply someone to listen. They wanted to sit down, have coffee, explain their situation, I guess probably thinking I was going to be empathetic. <laughs> so cute. Uh, but, um, but they just wanted more, more connection with their instructor. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's, it's rare that students find the courage to come up and ask for help. So yeah. finding ways like little, little games like this that help them at least express their issues, I think is we have to think more of finding more ways to to hear the students. And didn't you also find a strong correlation with the grades the students got? Yeah, we did. Um, um, but I cannot remember the details of that. I think we wrote it up in, in an article. The, the grades that students got as a function of emotional. Yeah, there was, a, there was clearly the students who had a bigger emotional challenges got lower grades. That was true. Now, whether it was with cause and effect, I don't know, but there was certainly a relationship between the two. Also, there was also, I will say, a very strong relationship between emotional state and and the minimum temperature. 
<laughs> and were you able to be predictive about it? Um, you know, we were. Uh, well, the, the predictive part was, and it's like, it's like this is one of those dull moments when you're teaching. And the dull moment was because we were asking, able to ask so many questions in class with all, you know, image-based questions, uh, free response questions, multiple choice, uh, wide numerical answers. The students who got more of those questions wrong during class did systematically poor on exams. Like, duh, if you don't get it during class time, you don't, you're, le you're less likely to know it on an exam. Uh, and these systems let me find those students who were just getting questions wrong and wrong, and, and I, I could reach out to them and, and ask if they wanted to get together, come to office hours, and, and you know, some did. But again, even though I knew that, even I could predict <laughs> that you're not going to do well, there are always going to be students who just, for whatever reason, didn't see value in it. Maybe they're taking a pass-fail and just didn't care. Um, there's all sorts of reasons I probably, I can only guess. So clearly you have spent a long time thinking very deeply about teaching and how to use technology. That's so nice you just started you're, you're quite old, Perry. I, I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> so you just started a new company. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your new company and your vision for this? Okay. Well, another pet peeve I had teaching is um, that I would be forever putting up extra resources that I thought were, were stimulating and related to what we we're talking about in the class. I would fill the, I think it was the files folder in Canvas with all these interesting articles or make pages of other stuff uh, in Canvas. <clears throat> and the students didn't look at them, which I... For all the effort I put in, I felt like they should at least give that some. And unless I specifically pointed it out during class, they didn't even know they existed. So I do a lot based on pet peeves. And this, this one was that we started building a system where we could ingest the video from class. And Kane gave us uh, a way to try this out. So we get the video from class. We get the transcript from class. And we index that information, what was talked about in today's class. And at the same time, scraped on my website everything that was in Canvas on my site. <clears throat> and then it made the relationships so that if I talked about, uh, you know, hurricanes in Bangladesh, it would be able to, you know, point them to an article or document I had in Canvas relevant to that discussion and automatically make the contextual links between what we're talking about in class and external resources. And then OpenAI came along and that just changed the whole game now because not only could we, we could ingest the class videos, we could take the class video and actually extract from the video any words which were being presented on the screen during class, which was good because the some people forget to turn on, turn on their microphones. Maybe the accent is such that the transcription is not good. And in technical courses, these transcriptions don't often get the technical words. Now we got them. 
And on top of that, we went and scraped everything in the canvas site. And then we built, came up with this very creative, I mean, creative, very creative system that you ask a question in class or outside of class, and it goes into our database and extracts any information that you either said, presented, or made available in Canvas, gathers that information, sends a, off a prompt then to uh, OpenAI, which then returns a, a response to your question. And the exciting thing for us was not only does it return the answer, but it returns each sentence, each part of the answer has a citation, which will take you back to the spot in the video or in the document that was used to create the answer. So for me, this became like, you have your own virtual mentor and every course could actually add another mentor to the course who would be able to answer the questions 24 seven with the confidence that the answers the students get are based only on what you taught. That's fascinating. So this is a really a curated data set curated by the instructor for the course by limiting it to just that material. Is that right? Precisely. And that, yeah. And, and the other part of it is that many of us instructors are concerned about our content uh, being released, um, being released out to the, um, out to the internet. So our system also forbids the, any information we get from the class being shared with the uh, large language models to protect the IP of the course. Wow. So you've explained pretty much how it works. Um, what, are, what do you view the best practices for using this uh, right now the way it is? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, Right now, in fact, in very, very soon, uh, being next semester, we hope to um, make this available uh, at Michigan uh, and at other schools uh, for people to try it out in their class. Because what we're looking for first is to make it available to instructors. Uh, you're teaching a course. We'll make a system for you for your course based on things you've said in the past, and then you can evaluate it yourself. Are the answers it's providing answers that you would find uh, appropriate? Answers that you'd be comfortable representing you to answer the, the student's question. And if not, why not? So we can help us uh, train the models better. But what we're looking for, this helps us train the model for your course so that you would once you release it to your students, know that it's going to be able to, you know, these students could ask a question at three in the morning and many faculty don't want to answer then. So it could get a response when the students have them. And that's sort of the ultimate goal here is to help. It's helping students, but it's also helping us. It's self-serving because um, all those questions now, some of them at least could get answered automatically. Again, we're hoping students, particularly those who are uncomfortable coming up to you, Stephen, Steve, and, and, or coming up to an instructor and asking a question verbally. Now they can go ask the question whenever they have it, and they might follow up with you, and you'll be able to see what questions the students are asking. 
but democratize the classroom, allow more students to ask questions, allow more students to participate in a way that's comfortable for them. That's great. And so can the instructor choose what gets shared with your model and what doesn't? Like say a instructor has um, all the homework solutions, but on Canvas, they're not gonna be revealed until after the student puts it in or exam right. solutions, right. that sort of thing. Well, the instructor, first of all, tells us whether they want us to be, to, uh, be sniffing their Canvas site. And if they do, what parts of it do they want us to sniff? Is it the files? Is it the pages? Is you know which or the assignments? Just oh my gosh, just the syllabus. And how many questions do you get every year from about the syllabus that the students should have known by just reading the syllabus? But they this way, it would answer questions about the syllabus and offload some of those some of those um, basic questions. So you can make those available. And as we do that, um, I'll call it sniffing of the system, spidering of the system, uh, we look each element in Canvas has a date attached to it. And that date tells it, has it been released to your students yet? If it hasn't been released to your students, we don't, we don't include it. So you, you have control over it. So if an uh, instructor was to ask to use uh, learning clues, say, next term, um, learning clues would come in every day and see what new material has been added or is available for the students and update it. Is that how it works? That's right. Okay, wow. And does the instructor have to do anything or is this all handled in the background? Well, it, it's all hands hands off. We don't want any more work for instructors. You know, as, a, as an instructor, I appreciate we're busy people. So the whole thing is works in the background automatically sniffing what's on your site. You just add more stuff to your Canvas site. It becomes available to your students uh, when you ask it to be. That said, we are trying designing an instructor dashboard so that you could see what questions are being asked that you could upload like, like we we generate definitions for the key words which are being spoken in class, but maybe you have a glossary of words that you prefer. You could upload your glossary, and that would just trump anything the AI does. We want the instructor to be able to design and have control over the course. We just want to deliver the content as accurately as possible to reflect what the instructor wants. Uh, but if we want it to include the entire ecosystem of resources. That said, I also want the students to have access to this and then let the, let the students be able to add other resources they personally would like to add to the course. Yeah. And maybe they found a YouTube video that's quite helpful. They could use that and make that part of their own uh, personal uh, learning space. So we encourage students to build their knowledge. That's the whole point here. Uh, but by giving them the basics. That's and great. Please ask the computer about when the next exam is. Don't trouble me with that. <laughs> and so um, I presume that if you have uh, documents um, in like a module um, linked that are, you know, the student can get, so can 
learning clues, they can get it. And I presume if you have links that go to YouTube videos that the instructor added in, those get included as well, just everything. If the instructor makes it available in Canvas, we trust that they put it there so the students would access yeah. it. What about the um, what about the textbook? The textbook um, um, asterisk. Yes, we can include the textbook. Uh, we're working with a couple of different uh, vendors, one vital source and, uh, and another one, um, and or open education textbooks. Open education textbooks, no problem whatsoever. We can make that part of the search. Uh, if you have a, a commercial textbook, we have a way now to work with, uh, with the publishers so that if you have uh, already, um, you bought your book through one of these vendors, that we would be able to know that the question you asked was talked about by your instructor as a part of a document in the Canvas, and it's on page 413 in your textbook. Click the link. Assuming you have the login, it'll take you to that page in the textbook. So I, I use perusal and students buy an electronic version of the text or rent it on perusal. So I have one part of the picture covered um, for the intellectual property. I know that every student in my class has already bought the book because it's a requirement. You can't mm -hmm. buy a used book or anything like that. Um, but it's not through vital source, it's through perusal. Yeah. So will that work? Uh, Eric and I need to have a beer and we'll make it. <laughs> and um, yeah, but I would think that a textbook author <clears throat> would love to have maybe a standalone version of your product for the book. So anybody who buys the book can have that once they prove they bought the book. I think that would greatly enhance, you know, it's, it's an amazing index for the book. I, I wish I just, well, we have recorded that. I will send that to the publishers because I, I think you're right. And that's conversations, but you know, talking to publishers and getting them to release their, well, you know, they, they are constrained by their authors about protecting the, uh, the property. Sure. So we just have to Put find a, a way to do that that fulfills that. And so it's doable. It's just a matter of conversation. But it should enhance the value of their book as long as they know how to control the IP. Oh, we can go a step further. In fact, we're talking with uh, like Vital Source about this, that that uh, we, we could add some code into the textbook itself. So you click on a, a keyword in the textbook, it'll open up your own instructor talking about it. We can go, and the whole point about what we built here is a system that is, I call it the mayonnaise in the sandwich. It's just kind of, it helps any any part of the content of the course know about all the other parts of the course. So if you can go, you can go from any one document to any other document because we know it was talked about in your class. That's that's the power, real power of the system is just organizing the entire learning ecospace. So now the one thing about this that I first thought of when I heard about it, and I've talked to you about it, um, is retrieving information like this from the student's perspective is fantastic. 
but it's still kind of a passive activity. They just ask and they get without necessarily thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So back to your experience with asking students why something is wrong, um, you've told me that uh, your next generation of learning clues will include um, more um pedagogically sound methods to actually improve the learning for students. Can you talk about that? Well, this is still in our roadmap, but yeah. uh, And understandably, students will learn deeper if they are, if they build their own understanding. And so this model that we're using now with uh, learning clues is uh, called more a librarian mode where you pose questions and it gives you a response, it does give you the links to the resources that are used to make the response, so you can go and, and review those resources to go deeper. Um, but we'd like to go to a different, uh, we'd like to offer a secondary option that you um, we don't have a name for it yet, but instead of coming back with the answer, it might come back and with a question to you. And that question, you as you answer that question, we would then know from your response how how to present the next the next page to you. And there are ways to build this. It's not trivial, but there are ways to build this so uh, you can help the students uh, build their understanding. You know, okay, you know, do you, you know what what what? What do you know about this? Or ask a question which leads them to, to tell us what they think the answer is, which will allow us to come back with a follow-up question like you would as an instructor with a student. Instead of just right. answering the question, you, you always come back and say, well, uh, what do you know so far about this? Or, and get the conversation going. That would be the goal. Uh, it's uh, it's not trivial to do, but uh, um, but we uh, have very reasonably, given the content we have access to, that this is doable. That's great. What about figures? Right now, I know that um, Chat GPT has trouble with figures. On the other hand, there's all these um, uh, image uh, AI tools like Dolly and others. Um, do you think there's hope for extracting information from figures that are presented in class or in books or in papers, or even giving students, um, you know, asking them questions to draw something, scan it, Either show it? We're getting close to the point where I have to ask for an NDA. This is. <laughs> <laughs> well, these are um, just. Yeah, the, yeah, I mean, we have. I mean, literally every week we have meetings and understand this project is, is just not me. And there's Kevin Collins Thompson from the School of Information and a team of like 20 students working on this. And uh, we're constantly studying what's what's the latest in generative AI. And it, it's, it's just head blowing every week. Yeah. What? <laughs> um, so the short answer is yes. Um, and I'm not gonna. I, I'm not gonna tip my hat here. That's but okay. Just say yes. Uh, figures can be interpreted. Not only can figures be interpreted, but potentially by simply sh- uh, taking one of the figures that you showed on a slide in class, we can generate questions for the student. That's great. 
And are you planning on adding? I mean, I've heard some of these voice models and they're amazing. So instead of, you know, typing your, your prompt, you use just talk and then the AI bot talks back to you in a better synthesized language than Siri or Alexa. No, I, that, you know, that, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> um, well, I've heard it. I've heard people again, use it. Yeah. And please understand that it's, it's, um, the, the students today are, are into this. And so having a, I've got this research team, we call it Clues on campus, and and they're exploring all these things. And and for them, it's it's like personal because this would affect their own uh, learning uh, and the learning of future students. So uh, all I can say is it's a, it's a rich minefield right now to uh, explore, and uh, and we're exploring as fast as we can. And of course, as these tools keep being developed that you can use. It's uh, I can understand your need for an NDA because uh, lots of people are doing the same thing. And there's already I'm getting in my my mailbox, um, you know, generative AI companies saying, oh, let's have a talk. We can we can help you, you know, have your students write better papers. Oh, and we can detect mm -hmm. plagiarism. It's like, no, they can't. And mm -hmm. um, it's uh, there. Everyone is getting involved with this. So. Um, what do they call it at Apple when, you know, like getting Sherlocked? <laughs> Lots of people are going to be getting Sherlocked. So this is a tough business to be in, Perry. Are you sure you want to be there? Well, actually, my wife makes doesn't want me just running around the house now that I'm retired. So, yeah, <laughs> no, this is fine. I, I, this, is, this is great fun, actually. It's just learning. You know, my area was uh, meteorology and air pollution. And we use things that are like um, are, are like uh, generative AI to analyze weather information. So expanding that to look at these words uh, has, has been a great, great learning experience for me. And I'm learning, leaning on people in computer science at Michigan and school information at Michigan. Um, I'm having a great time. This is this is a whole new genre of of topics. Uh, with, with just all, all sorts of potential. So my goal and the goal of the National Science Foundation is we make this, uh, they said, we don't want unicorns, we want zebras. We want, we want you to make an, a company that would actually just you know, be able to pay its dues, uh, but more importantly, it would serve a social need. And I hope that's where we're going. Well, I certainly plan to use your your company for my next term. And um, I know how to get in touch with you and it's easy and it's probably pretty easy for University of Michigan faculty, but can you talk about how others might be able to uh, get involved with you from other universities or anyone who happens to be listening to this podcast? Well, thanks, thanks for that. Um, yeah, we have a website, learningclues.com. And on that website are places you can sign up for. We are taking uh, invitations to get a pilot at other institutions. And um, uh, we have a number of uh, institutions who are signed up now. So we'll be moving, um, we'll be opening up at multiple schools uh, sometime in the spring semester. Um, 
And if other schools want to take it for a test drive, we can right now offer anybody the opportunity to try it out. Send us a link, uh, a, a, a YouTube playlist. If you had a YouTube playlist of your favorite lectures or whatever, send us that link and within a couple hours, we can send you back your own course that you can try it out uh, on your own to see if it's how, how it's answering the questions for that group of videos. I, I, I've been trying out all sorts of things. <laughs> of course, I'm biased, but I'm just quite, I'm quite thrilled with, uh, with what it's doing. Yeah, I, I can tell you, you did it for my lectures I made during COVID, and uh, it's amazing how good is it, it is. Do, I, is that, do we have the time to show it? or? Yeah, we can. Not, a lot of people might be listening to this, um, but this will be on YouTube, so you can show it. And I'm certainly, send me all the links and what you want me to say, and we'll put it in the show notes so that everybody will have it who... Uh, it's just listening on a podcast. They'll be able to go there, and we'll put the YouTube link into the show notes as well. So, yeah, show it to us. So here's a here's a course on Python, and uh, uh, how do you uh, create nested loops? And you could imagine any question you want to about Python. This is based on a course from Charles Severance in the School of Information at Michigan, where he had something like 50 videos in the course, and it's searching now through all those 50 videos and also uh, the textbook for his course. <clears throat> and it takes a moment because it's, it's it, looking through a lot of stuff, and it comes back here with an answer to create a nested loop. You start with the outer loop, and it iterates over blah, blah, blah. But the important thing here is this first sentence is based on citation one. And citation one, if we open it up here, it will take you to the, the exact spot in that lecture. Yeah, unfortunately, the sound from the computer won't show up. Yeah, but uh, the point being that the student now is able to ask the question and get an answer, but also that will go back to the original material that the instructor made available to yeah. uh, get the answer. And and it could be, it could be um, spots in the video or it could be spots in the textbook. So that's sort of the big picture there is, is just again, <clears throat> The things that we make available to our students make it so they can find them more quickly. Um, rather than having to scroll through a video, just take them to a near, at least near the spot where it's appropriate so it helps them um, more efficiently study. That's fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much, Perry, for uh, spending some time with us. Um, I hope a lot of people try your tool. I think they will. And uh, again, thank you so much. Please stick around because we have to wait for everything to upload. But with that, we'll say goodbye and I'll play our music. Thank you, Steve.